Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Rob McCoy. I'm a senior pastor here. For some of you who just come on Sunday nights, don't know who I am. Um, I wanted to share with you tonight. Uh, we're we're looking at the seven mountains of cultural influence. Last week, uh, Pastor Mark, epic study. Were you guys blessed by that? Yes. And uh, and then having Mikey Taylor come and share about the cultural mountain of influence in regards to business. I thought that was one of the best studies I've ever heard in relation to business. You guys are in for a treat. Tonight, uh, we're doing the Mountain of Arts and Entertainment, um, and I'm going to introduce our, our guests in just a moment. Um, we also have media, and it's going to be uh, hosted by a guy named David Brody. You can Google him. He is a correspondent for CBN. He's going to be coming out for media, I'll give you a chance if you want to get into media. Some of you students, you'll get a chance to interact with him. He's interviewed the president, uh, you know, cabinet leaders, all the way down the line. He's an amazing guy. We're also um, going to have a teacher next week. Uh, are we going to talk about him, Mark, Any at the end? Yeah, we'll talk about Keith in, at the end. I'm doing politics, um, so we're going to have a, a lot of fun in this. Um, okay, so tonight, arts and entertainment. Uh, this, this gentleman that you're about to meet, some of you know who he is. Um, I had the privilege. I was in uh, Iowa, and I was at one of the events we do around the country, and a guy came up to me with a Founders Bible, and it's basically a Bible with the history of, of the American founders and how each verse um, put this whole nation together and how they looked at a number of things like Exodus 21, how we got local, uh, county, state, and federal governments, as you see in Exodus 18:21. And, and he was laying this out, and I'm taking a look at it, and he was telling me he was instrumental in putting it together. And he was an older guy, and he was actually honestly quite boring, and I was busy, and I didn't really listen to him. Um, but he gave me the Bible, and I was thankful for it, and uh, I gave it to someone else because I didn't want to put it in my suitcase. Um, true story. But I came back here, and a guy kept saying, hey, I, I'm the editor of the Founder's Bible, and I want to get together and been attending the fellowship. And I kept thinking it's this older guy, and I'm like, oh, gosh, I don't know if I even want to do lunch with him. Um, but the persistence, because we were doing it via text. And uh, finally, my, my dad had passed away, so we had to cancel one of our opportunities to meet. And finally, we got around to sitting down together. And it wasn't the guy that I had met in Iowa. The editor of the Founders Bible was Brad Cummings, the guy who's speaking tonight. And we sat down at about 1 o'clock at Islands uh, over here. And we, we stayed there till about 5 o'clock in the evening. We would have kept going, but we both had pressing appointments. And we've been dearest friends ever since. Uh, he's also uh, one of the co-authors uh, of the, the book called The Shack. Some of you struggle over it. Some of you loved it. Uh, it's actually divided Christendom. And... <laughs> And he's, he's responsible for that misery, and he's here tonight. Anyone know what book was published in 1678 in Bedfordshire, England? Pilgrim's Progress, exactly. Bedfordshire, England, 1678. Anyone know the author of the Pilgrim's Progress? Bunyan, John Bunyan, not Bunyan on your foot. John Bunyan. Guess where he wrote that? In prison. And then guess who imprisoned him? The church. It was an allegory similar to C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And his was a dream, and he wanted to share this idea of the Christian's journey, and it's one of the best-selling books in the history of Christendom. It was inspirational in the establishment of our government because most of our founders read Pilgrim's Progress. And it established a foundation for them and an understanding of a personal relationship with a living God. It was pretty fa fascinating. One of the things folks struggle with is I'm going to have Brad come up in a minute is the way that God the Father is portrayed by a black woman. God is, is uh, you can't look upon him in this sense. And we get that out of Exodus 33, 
where Moses said, I want to see your glory. And God said, you can't look upon me and live. But what did he allow him to see? And we see this in the Sistine Chapel. Anyone know what God allowed Moses to see? Michelangelo painted it. His butt, his back end, his hindquarters. Some of you think I'm being, you know, awful. I'm just telling you the truth. Michelangelo painted that, assuming Exodus 33, you get to see his hindquarters. You can't see his face, but you get to see his rear end. Now, that's not the depiction, obviously, and there was a struggle over that. And, and the idea is we don't want to worship an image because we're creating the image of God and this idea that, that, that God wants us to have this comprehension of a deity that we can't explain because if we could explain God, he wouldn't be worth worshiping because he'd only be as big as our brain. So along comes Brad with another guy named Paul Young and another guy named Wayne Jacobs. And they, uh, Paul Young writes this original story. I'm not going to go into it, but I'll, I'll leave you with this. Brad is a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary with Masters in Divinity. He knows scripture and he knows how to rightly divide the word of truth. What I know about Brad Cummings is he loves the Lord. He's not a heretic. He's solid in his, in his theology. And he's a, a wonderful speaker and an incredible writer. And he's here tonight because he wants to share with you, and, and this is where Christendom struggles. When we try to make movies, we make movies for us and by us. And the only way we can fill a theater is to invite our church friends, and that's the only way to make it happen. But this screenplay of The Shack, Brad put forward to Lionsgate Entertainment and got this movie in 4,000 theaters across the United States. When it's all finished, it'll probably be about a $100 million movie. I'm, I'm from my lips to God's ears. Amen. That's an amazing work. It's the second most successful faith film in the history of our country. And God used this man to do it. And he did it in a secular industry, especially with Lionsgate, where he sat at a table where there was probably not a single believer around the table that makes the decisions. And he's going to share tonight how God used him, how he stepped into this cultural mountain of influence and made an enormous difference. And, and we like to be insulated within the church and decry everything that happens in Hollywood. But bad movies happen because there aren't good people making those movies. And the reason why is because they remain in the comfort of the church. Brad stepped out in faith and went right into the thick of it. And Christendom sits in the comfort of their four walls and they decry the activity of a man just like they did with John Bunyan. This man to me is one of the most amazing men I've had the privilege to get to know. And this work that he's done is going to last for a long time. I've seen the movie four times. If you haven't seen it, you need to go see it. And if you aren't seeing it because, well, I, uh, I read the thing and the person said, no, that, stop it. Seriously. Is that, you're, you're going off a of secondhand information instead of going to make a decision for yourself. You're not going to come out a satanic worshiper because you want to go see a movie. Yet you're going to sit through Hacksaw Ridge with every limb being blown off. Besides, Sam Worthington's in the movie for you ladies, and, and why don't you come and talk about Sam Worthington? Here's my friend Brad Cummings. Let's welcome him. I could be a heretic. I don't know. I asked my mom. She said I wasn't. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to John 4. I'm not just going to tell you some stories. I'm actually going to help you look at the Bible and see something. John 4, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father, Jacob. Are you who gave us the well and drank it of it, drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. I wanted to share this story first because the Lord said to me that Hollywood was the woman at the well. She uh, is very aware she's a sinner. We love to tell her that. I don't know that we, we, we bless the engagement. But what she doesn't know that we could be telling her is how incredibly in love with her he really is, which is true for all of us. And when you go on in this whole passage, you know, he outs her as, as having not one, but five husbands. And he doesn't do it to shame her. He first commends her for the honesty of what she was doing. And then in the whole course of kind of unveiling her heart and revealing his heart towards her, she gets into a little argument about, you know, well, are we supposed to worship here up in Samaria, which is where the ark of God was originally brought? And then King David decided to take it to Jerusalem. And we have no instructions anywhere in the Bible that he got that idea from God and it was authorized. He just did it. And so it's a real argument. The Samaritans are the people that when they all got carted away into Babylon, the Samaritans are the one that were left. And so they're pretty hated by the Jews. So it's like a war between the church and Hollywood. Okay, I think it's really appropriate. And in the midst of all of that, there's some profound truth that's going on. Jesus kind of looks at their little religious argument about where and kind of says, I'm not interested in where. I'm interested in what. I'm looking for those who will worship me in spirit and in truth. And that's that's a hard issue. That's not a geography And so when we we look at this, Jesus is cutting to the chase in this lady's heart. And the impact that it has on her is she then becomes the evangelist to the entire city. She goes back and she says, let me tell you of the one who has told me everything. Which is a little bit of an exaggeration, but that's Hollywood. Tracking? Is that fair? I don't think I'm doing it justice to the text. You know, my other day job is I, I, I have a Bible publishing company. I, I really am very smart, can rightly divide this thing. So it is funny when all of the theologians out there want to try to parse and rip apart a book that I, I can guarantee wrong. I can defend that. 
I feel like gladiator guy going like, are you not entertained? I just don't see the purpose in it when Paul says that we're to avoid wrangling about words because it leads to the ruin of the hearers. I gave my reputation to Jesus a while back. It's been trampled underfoot many places. He doesn't seem to care much about it. I figure if he does it, I don't really need to worry about it. Because he knows, he sees, I know he sees, and he's the only guy I have to answer to at the end of all of this. And so when we got a bunch of big, bad, scary guys that are saying, don't go see that, it's, you know, it's, it's heresy. I'm going like, okay, be a little more specific. It'd be nice if you brought up an issue. And the few ones that they bring up are like immediately something I can dismiss. And we will have a frequently asked questions up on the website if you want to go see those. But I, I look at all that going like, gosh, the movie's effect on audiences, most everyone's in tears. Most people are saying, I want a better relationship with God. Most people are saying, wow, I need to forgive some people. Most people weren't aware emotionally that God actually had affections for us. And this situation is one of hyperbole of kind of the worst injustices. And when they look at if God can crawl into the midst of that guy's life, Maybe, just maybe, he can crawl into mine. And the tagline for the movie is, is, you're never as alone as you think. And I end up going like, okay, so if that's damnable, damn me. Because I, I look at the impact on people's heart, and it's like, at the end of the day, we're supposed to judge a tree by its fruit. I don't see anyone out there worshiping Satan. I don't see anyone out there arguing. and, and I mean, they're wiping tears with smiles, and they're, they're hungry for the word of God. And even the people that hate it and it's terrible and have never seen it, and they know it's just awful, at least they're reading their Bible too. That's not bad. <laughs> hate me, don't hate me. Just read your Bible. You should never get your theology from a movie. Whoever said you should? I, I asked all of us. We, I asked, did anyone suggest that? No one in the room suggested that, ever. We take our theology from the Bible. But it is rather amazing that we were able to make this movie in the Hollywood system where there's not a single Christian on the board that ultimately pays the money and they have veto power over me. I had mutual approvals, had the best contract you could ever have in Hollywood, for real. But it all gives way to the golden rule, which is whoever has the gold makes the rules. Okay, so that's a bummer. <laughs> Note to the wise, best if you're the investor. Then you can guarantee everything. There's one, there's one line in the movie that really trips people up, but it is why they love the, the book. It's at one point where Matt kind of says, well, you know, what about following all the rules and being a good Christian? And then Jesus says, well, think about it, Mac. I'm not a Christian. And everybody trips over that one. 
that's like, what? And then it's like, well, just pause for a sec. Think about it. He's the Savior. God, very God, puts on humanity, the only unique begotten son. And is he a follower of himself? Not technically. So I haven't committed a faux pas there. It was intended to make you think. And I fought for five years to try to put the right context around that because everybody else wanted to just use it and leave it like that. They went, yeah, get out of jail free card. I don't have to be a Christian because they don't like us at all. But somehow they liked this story. And somehow they were interested in this story because it ruffled so many of our feathers. And I kind of went, okay, I can use that. I still don't quite get that, but I can use that. And so in, in, in their own sympathy, they're, they're trying to understand this. They're actually being tractor beamed closer to God. And I'm going like, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And I, I, would, I would sort of, you know, constantly raise my hand like, guys, that's not really what that's saying there. The point is not about what you call them, not what label you put on it, because usually the, the original use of the word Christian was a derisive term. It was dismissive. Those silly little Christs. You know, who do they think they are? That cult? The followers were originally called people of the way. And it wasn't a label about an it. It was a direction called following him. I like that one. It's just longer. And when we name things, we just want simple one words, you know, Christians. Now we're so jazzed about it that we want to fight and call things heresy that make us think without understanding the context. Because when I have to get past a whole bunch of Jewish execs, do you think I'm going to get the word born again in the script? I mean, really, in Hollywood, I'm not even sure it was in God's not dead. I wasn't going to get that word in there. And so I wasn't going to be able to fight for my right use of that word. So I had a little thought. I think it came from heaven. What does it mean to be born again? If we take out the label, what does it mean? So Jesus responds and says, I don't care what you call them, Mac. I just want people to be transformed by knowing Papa's love. That they might be genuine sons and daughters. Could you explain for me what it is to be born again? I think that's a decent definition. We're talking about familial relationship, transformation. Why? Because of God's love. So I, I look at that and I go like, I'm cool with this. Mac's response in that moment is, I don't think I've ever felt that. So Jesus says, why don't you put your shoes back on and I'll show you how. That would be an invitation to the gospel. Oh, theologian decrying us as blasphemers, 
And then he has an encounter where he's confronted with the reality of eternity and our eternal destination and the threat of there is a hell, there is a heaven, and he's put into an impossible situation. Why? Because right now, the words that God loves him, they're just words, like they are for so many other people. It's just words. I feel nothing. I'd love to feel something. And for five years, I'm sitting there going like, okay, I don't have a chapter to, to, to boil this. I, I don't have a chapter to play with. I've got like 15 lines of dialogue that I've got to distill this down to. How, how are we going to make that a feeling that comes alive inside him? The issue is he doesn't know what a father is like. Why? Because his dad used to beat him with a belt and Bible verses. So showing up as a father, talking about holiness and justice, wasn't going to start a conversation for this guy. It wasn't a theological issue. It was a communication issue. And I think God really wants to communicate with us. And so even the whole premise of going, well, I don't know, you made an image of, of God. And I'm going, it's not graven and no one's falling down worshiping it. I really don't think it's an idol. It's a story. Last time I checked, the four Gospels are, in fact, stories, each written to a different audience for a different purpose, covering some of the same information, but not identical. So if we thought they were like four cameras all recording the same events, we have some camera issues. They don't all line up with gaps in the footage. And I, I look at all this and I'm going like, you know, God in the arts and entertainment. Really? Well, yeah, in the beginning, God created. I mean, isn't that like the fifth verse, fifth word? In the beginning, that's three, God, four, created. Right there, God's a creator above all else. If you look at the world around us, Paul would even say in Romans, you guys don't even have an excuse of pretending you don't know. It is self-evident. You have to suppress that truth. We don't need the written word. You just have to be able to open your eyes or be able to smell something or feel something. That's self-evident that a creator created and I think most of us would acknowledge, I'm not him. So we recognize, oh, part of creation. So the question is, which I think the entire Bible is about, is who and what are you going to worship? I think that's what this arts and entertainment mountain is all about. It is about the worship of men's souls. We're either going to turn to God or we're going to turn from him to something else. But worship you will. I mean, I know that inside the human soul is a vacuum of eternity. And the question is, what will fill it? And the only thing that will ultimately satisfy, which is like the living water, 
that we're really thirsty for, but don't quite know, is the living God. Not a dead God with a book. I mean, it's like somebody complained about the shack. It's like, well, if you want to hear from God, why don't you take your Bible and read it out loud? I went, great idea. But it's not the only way you can hear God. Plus, that's just you reading it. It's different when the author breathes on it. You've all had that Bible verse that jumped up, smacked you on the head, jumped back down. You went, where'd that come from? Right? I love that. That's God speaking through his word. But he can speak through a lot of things if you let him. And then you discern and test it by this thing, which none of us can really read objectively, just in variations of subjectivity, if we're honest. But this is helpful to be able to hear his voice. And so when I, when I look at all of this and, and, and what we're about doing and, and what this mountain is about, I want you to know a few things about the Bible itself. Is that okay? What if I were to tell you that the Apostle Paul actually quotes some rock star poets of history? Were you aware of that? Yeah, somebody's like, whoa, wait a minute. This is that blasphemer guy, that heretic. <laughs> I knew Rob was in trouble. Um, I do want to just, there's a guy named Epimenides that Paul quotes in Titus 1.12. He's on the island of Crete. This is written about the Cretan guys are just sort of going off and, and making a bunch of wrong you know, accusations about Christianity and, 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 and derisive comments about the gospel and just saying it's ridiculous, blasphemers. I mean, just and, and because they worship Zeus. And Paul, in his letter to Titus, refers to it, and it says, you know, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And that's actually a quote. What's amazing is it actually comes from a poem. And what, unfortunately, in a lot of our English Bibles, this is where you get my other profession as a Bible publisher. Our English Bibles, there's no way to get a direct word-for-word translation into English. We try, but there are not direct equivalents for everything. And so I think you can absolutely trust this with your life, absolutely. But we're still getting our best guess when we take it from one language to this one. And what we miss, what most of the folks miss in the name of trying to be as accurate as possible is we miss the literary forms that they're written in. In the original language, sometimes they're poems that rhyme like that and have a little lilt and meter to it. I'm serious. There, there are songs in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. That love chapter is a song. Could be played with a guitar to music. All of the psalms. You don't hear them, but they played them. 
and even gave musical instructions for them. And we're good, really good Bible students. And what we have is narratives in prose. We don't have the beauty of the poems preserved. Now, I want you to think about this. In God's own love letter to us, I'm not some frou-frou poet. I'm, I'm not, okay? I, I'm more a construction handy guy, you know, dig ditches kind of stuff. I don't go listen to poems and I don't wear berets, but the very fact that God would, in his own writing to us, have the tenderness to use a poem to refer to it with a sense of a song. Most of all the ancient creation narratives, they would postulate that creation was sung into existence. I can't prove that to you. But looking at a sunset, I go like, I bet that's true. I really do. Every night God paints a new one. Nobody's doing that on the earth. You go to Hawaii, they got some spectacular ones. And you just go like, that's the God we worship. Why must we reduce him to this dead letter thing that we parse? And, it, you know, it's like, I too know Greek and Hebrew. Are you not entertained? I mean, I can get you. Hebrew is an idiomatic language. When you understand the actual roots, the very purposeful meaning of a word leaps to life in vivid color. It's extraordinary to actually know the original language. It's extraordinary. There's precision in Greek, which is really awesome when you want to understand verb tenses and, and just what does this fully apply to. And unfortunately, we, we don't get a lot of that when it trickles down to us. I love what we have. Play, build your life on this. A Bible falling apart usually has a life that isn't. Okay? My wife looks like, wow, that's old. I mean, yeah, I got duct tape in here and a bunch of other stuff. It's awesome. But I want to encourage you. Um, that moment on Mars Hill in Acts 17, when Paul is being brought because of the epics and the Stoics, and he's in a debate. And he starts looking around for like, okay, so what can I use here? He finds this altar to an unknown God. That's a quote. Back to this Epimenides guy. Quotes him twice. Two different books of the Bible. Does that mean Epimenides is now... In the hall. No, he's a pagan, and call, Paul calls him a prophet. Oh, theologian, explain that one. Pagan non-worshipper of God that Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament, says is a prophet. I'm sorry. I can't give you a good explanation for that one. I just tell you the facts. Epimenides, there was, there was a some kind of disease that just took over the whole Athens area and it was, it was killing everybody. Epimenides had this idea of taking a bunch of goats or a bunch, a bunch of sheep 
and says, bring them over, let them wander. And wherever they lie down, we'll mark that and we'll do a sacrifice there. And the plague was lifted. Those were named altar to an unknown God. Why a sheep? Does it have a hint of a reference to the Bible? Of a lamb slain, a sacrifice, and a plague lifted? That actually happened in history. It's included in the Bible here. Paul uses it as a defense in a debate with a bunch of other poets and philosophers. And he's referencing something that you and I would say, I mean, is it inspired? That's a mind bender. It's in the Bible, right? There's also a point in the Bible where Paul stops and says, now I don't have a command of the Lord, but I give you my opinion. And then the very next sentence is his opinion. And he just told you it's not from the Lord. It's his idea. Now that does a doozy on a lot of theologians and their perspectives of biblical inspiration. I'm going like, I didn't write it. I'm just reporting the facts. And let's be honest with them. I don't think any of that denigrates God, his holiness, his justice, and the veracity of the Bible for us. But it does sort of blow up some of our little trite little packages we're so authoritatively declaring about them. And so when I look at the arts and I look at entertainment, um, the international standard uh, version of the Bible is the most up-to-date, most recent translation of the scriptures with all the best dudes that they could bring and all the research of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's extraordinary. As opposed to choosing between poems and, you know, exact trying to get the accuracy language, they blended those two together so you could see where the poems still are. And they have awesomely translated this thing. It's not well marketed, which is why I'm looking to buy it and acquire it, because my favorite's the NASB because it's the most accurate word for word in our English language translation with the least amount of bias. All the others have their own little philosophies behind them, which is why they rendered it this way versus that way. And after everything I know, this is the most unbiased, just the facts, ma'am. But we lose in the NASB all of the beauty because of technical accuracy. Well, the guys that produced that decided to go, that sort of changes things. If God just wrote you a note versus he wrote you a poem, how'd you feel? Ladies, which do you want? Poem. Guys, I'll take the note. <laughs> well, fine, read the NSB. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Is anyone weirded out by what I'm saying? This is, this is wild. I kind of like, wow, God. You're sort of extraordinary. 
This is what I wrote for the, the ISV guys. They asked me if I can consult with them for a marketing con- And I said, you guys do not know how to tell your own story very well. Okay? So I wrote them back a question. I said, what does it say to us that God would desire in his inspired word a song or a poem? as opposed to just straight prose. It tells us something of his character and personality. It is more than just doctrine. There is a someone to know, a relationship to be had, not just a verse to be memorized or some rule or principle to be applied. The truth is there, the same clear understanding rendered, but there is provided for you the added feel and emotion of the one writing and what he wanted to convey the available emotional impact on the reader, the lyrical tone to be enjoyed, the memorable capacity that would naturally be be conveyed to the hearer. Isn't that amazing? You can read the lyrics to a song, and that is wonderful, and it will help you understand the theme and the subject matter. But it's not the same thing as having a song sung. We consider the word of God to be such supreme importance that we didn't feel that either of those elements should be sacrificed. This is not an either or, but rather a both and approach. We desired the accuracy of the language in the original context, essential for academic study, critical exploration of the treasure of scripture, but neither did we want to remove the lyrical beauty and the purposeful intended literary forms employed by the biblical authors. When they wrote this in a poem, it was done so on purpose. It would not be appropriate for us to remove that insight and the understanding to be gleaned from it from future generations of readers, students, or disciples. There was an original intent behind each and every word chosen and each and every literary form employed. For us to be faithful with the transmission of the text, it is not ours to interpretively decide for everyone else whether or not that's important. The God of the Bible is the creator, an artist, a lyricist, a storyteller, a righteous judge and a legal advocate. He is all of those, not just one. That is the treasure trove to be enjoyed and discovered and to be discovered within the richness of the scriptures. The ISV wants that to be made plainly available to all, not hidden or obscured. I could sell ISV Bibles. I, th- I, th- I, think, I think with that understanding, people would go, oh, wow, that'd be good to know. And I want to encourage you, how does truth get told in Hollywood? If we don't have some of the same ability to move emotions and to craft something that, so that people feel something, I don't know why the church treats that as, oh, that's dangerous. That's deceptive. That's that thing about the Shaq movie. You can go there and it'll make you cry. But it's blasphemy. It'll suck you in. And I'm going to know it took seven years to craft that. It was amazing. We had, we had the guy that did the score for the, the movie. And he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But he was so brilliant and so gifted, he made wall-to-wall sound. And when I watched the cut with the entire you know, score in there, 
I didn't like it because it was taking away my capacity to choose what I wanted to feel. It was so good that it was telegraphing for me all of the emotions I should be having, said the composer. And I'm going like, no, 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 no. That feels almost manipulative. Not interested in that. Got to pull this back a little bit. Lighter touch. I want the audience to be able to decide whether they want to engage or not. We're dealing with people's pain. Not something you, like a bull in a china closet, just run into, like, feel this. You know? It's like, let's respect our audience. They're actually intelligent. Let's let them decide whether they want to feel or not. Let's them decide if they, what if they don't want to cry? What if that's really hard? Let's, let's give them the respect of allowing them a choice. That then took three extra weeks with the sound editor pulling out every last instrument to find out where does it give me that little bump and where does it go too far? And I just thought that was utterly extraordinary so that by the time they were done, it was like it didn't feel like a couple of pair of hands behind you pushing you. I went, whoa done by non-Christians. This whole movie was made by a bunch of non-Christians. I was the one obstinate gatekeeper that got himself pushed off the movie several times for being so obstinate, which wasn't fun. And I had my throw-down arguments with the Lord, and he kind of said, you know, uh, spilt milk, there's no reset button. You're going to have to love your way back in there. You mean like live this? <laughs> yeah. And I did. And I was able to win about 95% of the battles in post-production because they considered me a genuine witness to the truth of what this was about. And they had already played with it in another way that wasn't working. And as opposed to my saying, see, I told you so, I sort of buried that and kind of said, well, have you considered this? The very question I asked that you pushed me away from, let's just revisit that for a moment without saying anything. Have you considered this? And with gentleness and humility, as opposed to clash of swords and egos, gently brought a bunch of people that don't know this like I did, along where they started to see it for themselves. Now, here's the bummer. They read the digital space and the newspapers and the blogs out there just as much as everyone else, more so. They have an instant pulse and pipeline on everything. And they've decided to take their foot off the marketing pedal and thrown up their hands kind of in their own sense of disgust, going like, we made a movie that isn't what we believe, trying to back you up in what you believe, put some of the best people and was the most expensive faith-based movie they've yet made, 
I didn't think it was a big deal for them, frankly, because it wasn't that much. And we've sold 22 million copies of the books. I'm like, you have a good audience out there, relax. But when they see all of the arguing and the ugly, mean-spiritedness, one of the markers says, I just don't get it. I had to go to the Catholic church on the corner and went to the priest and I asked him, what does heresy mean? Why are they saying all this? And she looked at me and says, that's why we don't like Christians. I said to it, I know. Me too. (laughs) It bums me out. Can you turn to Matthew 11? How are we doing? Time-wise, we're right? Good, I think? Yeah? Okay? Have I said everything? No one's offended back here? We're good? Okay, we're all offended. I've done it then. Yes. Matthew 11. Verse 7. And as these were going away, Jesus began to speak, speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, what did you go out and see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those, are, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's palaces. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who you will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Welcome to Hollywood. It is an absolute battle. I think the only place that's worse is politics. That's why I like Rob. (laughs) You take that mountain, I'll take this mountain. Yours is worse. (laughs) But I got your back. (laughs) For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you care to accept it, this is red letters, people, okay? You think I have got questionable theology. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah. What? What? Do you have a problem with this? Not at all. I got you. That's a good question right there. How is John the Baptist really Elijah? If you care to accept this. What do you think the theologians in Jerusalem thought about his lack of divinity training? (laughs) He is the word, but he's not rightly dividing it right there. That seems messed up, right? Anyone? Did you know this was in your Bible too? Golly. But to what shall we compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to one another. 
and say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he's got a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking. Oh, behold, he's a gluttonous and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You can't win here. <laughs> Not with this crowd. You know what's interesting is that, that, that whole bit, we played the flute and we sang a dirge, is actually a four stanza poem. A better translation would be, a wedding song we played for you, the dance you simply scorned. A woeful dirge we chanted to, but then you would not mourn. Jesus is quoting a poem. I mean, it's all right the other way. You got the same meaning. But it is rather interesting in the midst of his argument and debate, he reaches for a poem. And I sort of look at us, and if we're ever going to try to take this mountain, folks, we got to figure out if we're on the team or not. The church is known for its circular firing squads. Oops, everyone's dead. Oh, we're done. Go home to Jesus. I mean, I, there are better ways to win a war. So, <laughs> Rob asked for a little Bible to back up the mountain, so that's our little Bible. You want to come up and ask questions? Sure. Sure. <laughs> I want to sit up here. So we're going we're gonna to do like we did last week. Um, if you guys have questions, you can... Text it to that number right there. If you have a question for Brad, and uh, they'll get it back there and shoot it up to me here. Um, okay, so this is this is one of those areas for me as a minister. First of all, when um, and, and the interesting aspect of the church when uh, when I had uh, Bishop Huggins come and speak. Uh, Theologically, there's there's a difference between the two of us in a number of ways. Politically, there's a lot of difference between us. Um, his preaching style is wholly different than my own. Um, he's got that cadence, and when I speak over there, it's the same thing. It's you know we're we're really out of our element, and um, and then I got pushback from some folks. You know, his theology's a little off or this kind of struggle, and I actually quite honestly love the tension. I love the tension. Um, I I don't think that. My job is to make you comfortable, um, and I like the tension because if we had our own druthers, we'd stay within the comfort of the four, four walls of the church and not engage the culture. And, and these are things you have to process through life. This is a man who is engaging, and I want to ask you some questions specifically about how you had to engage in this pantheon of uh, Jewish executives in Lionsgate. Um, and and he, 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 this, is, this is his realm. And he's processing, and the thoughts you're hearing him speak are active. This is his life. And it's, it's good to have theory, but this is practicum. He's in it. And, you know, if, you, if there's not a heretic in the room that you haven't gotten it wrong somewhere along the line, this is the challenge of faith. This is that idea that you're applying the word to where you operate and how you, you, you contend in these mountains of cultural influence. If you just want to stay here, 
and get fat on the word, that's great. But if you want to make a difference, stepping into these cultural mountains of influence, you're going to process and you're going to come up with this understanding of how the word applies in every situation you're in. And God will give you a word when you need it. Share with um, the folks um, that really intense uh, moment in the board of directors where you're contending for the movie and they want to take out the trinity. They want to remove the, the key component to what you wanted to try to deliver to an audience, an understanding of this Godhead and and how they were going to shut it down. Share with them if you wouldn't. And yeah. don't take a long time because you took I won't. a long time preaching. Sorry. And, all right. Sorry. I had a lot to say. Um, it was good. We had a director that was, um, if I named him, you would go, oh, wow. And you know his movies. He's great. Um, and he was wanting to say, let's take this beyond just the faith bubble and let's let's take it to a general market audience. And I think if we would get rid of the, the Trinity and just have sort of generic God, then it would reach far and wide because the Trinity kind of locks it into biblical Christianity. And I'm sitting here like, oh, I missed the memo that this was the vision for this. And everyone is nodding because he has a great career and it would be an amazing you know thing to land. Everyone is flown in who's anyone is here for this meeting. And I'm going like, okay, th- that's like three quarters of our main cast. That's not a cool idea. And this book is loved by millions, not a cool idea. And, and so I raised my hand. And I said, can I just ask a question before we go too much farther? Do you know why we chose the Trinity and, and, and why we're, we're coming from, you know, biblical Christianity? And it was a genuine question because I thought this was a surprise for me. I, I'm just going to ask. And he, he was really offended. No, Brad, why don't you tell us? And I'm going, okay, that was not good. <laughs> and so I'm going... Okay, you know, also when you ask questions that you haven't thought through the answers as well, that was one of those moments too. Because I thought it was the right question. I just, I hadn't thought through the answer. And then in my head, I was like, you know what? Of the pantheon of gods available to us, there's still only one who has sacrificed himself, crawled into the mess and nightmare of humanity so as to bring healing as the result. And that guy's Jesus. And then the other producer looked at me like, we should have talked. And then I realized I'm sitting in the Jewish Sanhedrin of Hollywood, and I have just made my case for Jesus. Again, not thought through. It's quiet. I knew whoever speaks first loses here. (laughs) So I just looked down at my shoes and said my piece. The guy who owns most of everything is the one who chimes in. And he says, you know what? I haven't read the book, but I've read the screenplay. And I don't ever dream, but I've had two dreams that just haunt me after reading the screenplay. So I don't think we should change it very much. And then he gave me a look like, you know, good job, kid. Um, Because I stood up to the big Hollywood director guy, and I'm a nobody. So he's like, yeah, nice. Then, Then... then the head of production chimes in, and he says, I'm Jewish. And I'm like, well, who is it, you know? <laughs> and he said, the stuff about Jesus in the book has never been off-putting to me. It, it never seemed to present a hurdle that, 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 that I was confronted with, because there's no sales pitch in this. It's just showing you. It's not demanding something of you. 
And he says, so we've learned an awful lot about adapting movies into success, adapting books into successful movies. And I don't think, you can take a pass at it, but it's going to have to pass his muster. And he pointed to me. I went, ooh, wow, cool. I think, I think we won here. The next day, I was informed that World War III had started. <laughs> and his agent, the guy, the most powerful guy, of the, the, the biggest agency in all of Hollywood, had informed Lionsgate that if they don't remove me from the picture, that they will shut out all of Lionsgate and they will not be able to use any of their actors, any of their directors, and, and they meant it. So I'm assuming I've just imploded. I, I, I guess I'm cooked. And Lionsgate, they decided to say, eh, we're calling your bluff. No. Which is really cool. That was short. No, it wasn't. But it's a good story. Yeah, well, while you're talking, question after question is streaming in. All right, do this quickly. What's your favorite movie and why other than The Shack? Braveheart. Braveheart. That's great now you look at you. I actually painted my face and got in trouble for it while preaching. You were there, yes. Don't do it that. It was a good here. message. It's a great message, but I got taken to the woodshed for I don't know why. All right, you can do it here if you want. How did you come to Christ? Quickly. Age six. Age six. I saw Jesus as Mr. Felt behind the felt board and he winked at me. That's quick. That's a that's a quick answer. It's true. Amen. Your I, mom and dad I, took you to church? They did, but that was a little Bible study at the bottom of the hill. Amen. Precious. Um, now you can go a little more in depth. Okay. I'm being kind of rude. Okay. Will you be able to work with Lionsgate, Lionsgate again based on the relationships you've established with the shack? This is a cool one. I, I'm, these I, questions are great, by the way. I, but... I, I think so. Um, they, they, were, they were party to an unkind coup on me. I hope they don't watch this, but they did. Uh, um, we can cut it out. No, it's fine. All right. I had a dream one night where the Lord showed me what was going on. I woke up at 3 in the morning, sent it to the president, and I said, I had this dream. Could be the undigested hamburger I had at 1 a.m., or it could be God. <laughs> but this is what I think you guys are doing, and this is what I think you should not do, because this is what I think the Lord would want, and fired it off make it or break it moment, you know? Seven in the morning, eh, could you meet us down in the lobby? They yielded and recognized what was going on, what they did, that it wasn't cool, and they were willing to make a way for what I had suggested. That's God who whispers, who knows what's going on in the king's bedroom, decides to tell his little servant, is what's up. Um, because of that, I actually have some clout with them. They kind of figure they don't understand it, but they go, this is for real, I guess. So I think we can do another movie. This is looking successful. Amen. All right, this, this is a cool one. Uh, would, you just, would you try to describe the most important scene that was left out of the movie? Left out? Yeah. Um. We, we only had 38 days to you know, shoot. Let, let's time it together. Because this one says, why was the ending uh, of the movie different than the book? Was there a reason it was changed from Mac going back to the cave where Missy's body was? Yeah, we just simply didn't have time 
to tell multiple endings. Unless you're Lord of the Rings where they go for like seven different endings. I think it's a little much. I'm not Peter Jackson. God bless him. He is very successful, but seven endings, really? Um, we, we thought we would go for the most emotional bang for the buck that most people could identify with. And we figured we would pick up parents as well as young people by showing the, the, the tension and, and the hurt between Mac and his daughter, Kate. And that was the most emotional, I think, draw for everyone because you can identify with one of them. Yes, sir. Are we allowed to follow up questions? No. Yes, you are. No, you're not. You have to text them. This is no. technical. If you don't have a What's phone, the follow-up? Are... Give him a pass, Rob. No, 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 no. All right, go ahead. <laughs> Hurry up, do it. So who makes those decisions? Is that you? Or... Death by committee. Death by committee. Movies that, the fact that any movie even gets made is extraordinary. It just is, okay? We had too many cooks in the kitchen for way too many scenes. And finally, we were able to get down to a couple where, you know, yes, let's just cut through all the chase and let's do that. And so there's, there's two producers on the movie. There's me who knows the biblical side, and there's Gil who knows awesome filmmaking. Were you involved in the casting? Yes. Did you pick Sam? No. Oh. Sam, Sam was actually, forgive me, Sam, he was down on the list. We had gone through so many people. There were so few people in Hollywood that were even willing to be associated with whatsoever. They liked it. They thought it was a great role, interesting read, but I can't do one of those. It ruin your career. Yeah, it would. And so it took five years to finally get this thing, and we didn't even have the Holy Spirit cast before we started shooting, which I thought was ironic. Um, to, well, no, there's too many questions. That's, that'd be my own. Let's do this. This is a tough one. We're, we're getting to the uh, universalism. No, that's the easy one to answer. All right, all right, all right. Ask it. All right, I will. Okay. Slow down. Calm down, cowboy. How do you explain Papa's or Paul Young's claim that basically Jesus' death saved everyone regardless of whether they accept it or not? And I don't know, that, that's not necessary. Well, go ahead and cover that, the book and the movie. Um, Paul wrote the original manuscript. The original manuscript was only 32 pages, and it didn't even call God Papa. Um, he gave the manuscript to my partner at the time who kind of helped nurture the story a little bit. And then it grew to about 113 pages. And don't put this on YouTube. Um, no, you can. And then we gave him some, you know, I, I saw it at that point, and it was amazing. I thought, this is, this, is, this is a wonderful story. But it did have universal reconciliation as its primary conclusion, which I kind of went, this is an amazing story, but I don't agree with that. I don't like that, and I'm not going to be involved if that has, and Wayne said the same thing. And so we kind of said, pass, we're not interested if this is the conclusion that you need to have. And he was amenable for us to remove it all and to readjust the focus and reshape the entire novel. And so for 16 months, the three of us wrote the thing that became the bestseller. Paul brought us the original manuscript, had a nice spine to it, but it, it didn't have anything of what the novel is. But we always deferred to him with the sense of, you brought the first thing. And for that time and season, he was in agreement with us, so we thought. He now has a TV series out there where he's sort of going back and re-explaining everything. And it's like, 
it makes me spitting mad because I'm going like, that is not true. That's not in the published novel. It's not even remotely in the movie. And all the little landmines that we saw people were stumbling over in the book, I made sure that we didn't have to deal with in the movie. Uh, I would ask the person who texted the question, how do you explain Papa Young, uh, Papa's claim that basically Jesus' death saved everyone regardless of whether they accept it or not? Uh, uh, that, that's not in the movie. It's not in the movie, yeah, so that, and it's not in the book. I mean, we get, unfortunately, because we decided to honor Paul and put his name on the cover. The title page reflects that all three of us wrote it, and it was co-authored, and two of us do not even remotely believe that, and I can defend the book that it's not even remotely in there, but when the most visible guy, because Hollywood and the publishing industry, all they know how to do is to make a celebrity so as to create a brand so they can leverage the brand for more dollars, okay? They created that. So when people go, that's what he really believes? See, I thought that's what it was. And it's like, no, it's not in there. But that's why the claim is out there. And the sheer easiest defense is two-thirds of the writing team that wrote this don't believe in this, and it was the deal-breaker that said we will not be a part of it if that's the conclusion. Why is he now saying that? I think it's because he actually believes it. I can't control the guy. I love him. I don't agree with him, but it is still America. He's free to conclude what he wants. It's just not accurate and defamatory, and we have legal things going back and forth that I hope just would sooner be resolved between people. But that's where it's like, it's a bummer, but it's stirring up all this controversy. And the best defense is simply to stand, it's the truth. It's not in there. We don't agree with it. The, the movie doesn't have it at all. Watch for yourself. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I've gotten so much response from people who have uh, made comments about the movie based on the book and they haven't seen the movie. And it's, it's getting to a point where I just respond, go watch the movie. But, but I'm, I'm even going to say it's not in the book whatsoever. There are questions yeah. that are allowed to be asked that, that I go, that's a provocative question. And none of us has been in eternity at the end of all of this. So is it possible that you can have, a, have that as a question? Yes, which is why we don't say get your theology from the story but it's a question that is raised, but the book also very clearly declares, you must be born again. And it walks through that because in the book, we have time. But the, the critics, whoever are saying that, have not been a good student of what's actually in the book. Let's get to the next question. Please. Yes, amen. Were any of the cast Christians and did anyone get saved during the making of the film? Yes, people got saved during the making of them, but... Not to my knowledge were any of the key cast believers. Um, Tell them a story about Sam. If you, if yeah, you what, what, what was so amazing about Sam was Sam showed up kind of perfect for the role because he was kind of an agnostic. In the book, Max, a conflicted believer. In the movie, so as to make it more reachable, we made him an agnostic. He's not sure. So Sam, for 38 days of filming, is kind of wrestling and working his way through the script, which is awesome because that's what Max having to do. By the end of the movie, Sam had a whole bunch of head scratchers where he's just, he's kind of wondering. And the scene between him and Papa, where all of a sudden Octavia has the tears and that whole thing is portrayed, that blew everyone away. 
the nice thing is the Holy Spirit fell on the set at that moment. Everybody's in tears. The most powerful Japanese media agent is sitting right next to me, weeping, looks at me scared, like, what's happening to me? I go, that's okay. That's God. And she looked at me like, and I said, would you like to know him? Wow. Japan is not exactly reached. It's starting. But, but Sam then went on to do Hacksaw Ridge. And if you saw the role that he was in there, he's having to deal with another story and this man of integrity. And so by the end of his summer, I looked at Hacksaw Ridge, turned to my son, and went, I think God is hot after Sam Worthington. <laughs> and when he did the um, press junket for us, and I was nervous because I had no idea what he was going to say. He knocked it out of the park because he spoke from his heart. And this thing had gotten inside because when he was filming with us, he was a brand new father with a newborn that he was going home to and holding every night. And I just got to say, when you have a kid, all the theory about stuff all of a sudden becomes a reality in a way that just was precious. And so I think a lot's happened in his heart. Is a baby? You have to text your question. I am not doing this anymore. <laughs> the, 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 the number. It's a number. I didn't. I didn't check myself, but I think it was a boy. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, looks like I got another doozy here. But let me let me ask this one. Um, how and when did you get onto the Hollywood scene? I don't know that I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's here's one. Uh, how can God be in the earth when it is, when He is not of it? How can He be in the earth when He is not of it? This is a New Age tenant exclamation point. I'm not sure I understand all that. Other than I would point to the incarnation. Jesus takes on humanity. He's man and God, very God at the same time. We, we get another, like, dig at us. And I would also add, in, it's a dream, allegory, work with me, go ahead. But, but I mean, thank you for that. It is true. You don't need me defending you. But, but I, I, I end up going, like, this whole thing, people, people say, oh, you made it where, the, where, where Papa has scars. And what you're saying is that ancient heresy where the, it was the father who was crucified, not Jesus. I'm like, you didn't listen to anything that Papa said? What my son chose to do, don't think that what my son chose to do didn't impact us both. Love always leaves a mark. I was, with, I was there with him. 2 Corinthians 5.19, for it is God who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This isn't a modalistic heresy. This is in shorthand visually trying to communicate this thought that when you feel utterly forsaken, perhaps there's more going on than you know and see. How do I say that in five seconds visually? By showing something that causes you to think. Did any of you go, oh, that's a heresy? No, you didn't. 99.9% of the audience goes like, oh, wow. And then a couple of theologians, heresy. And I go, no, you gave me your verse, 
boo, I'll give you my verse. We're not doing the full thing that they're declaring. Not in, not in the story, not in the fullness of it. But everyone repeats that because then it means that they don't get shot by the firing squad. The circular one. What kind of pathway do you think the Passion of the Christ uh, help make for Christian movies? I think it showed Hollywood that a boatload of money could be made. And, and so also, it, it made it economically viable. And it was an R-rated film. It was. And the church that promised to have Mel's back shipwrecked him. I sat with him for three hours. We talked through all of those dynamics. That was sad to hear. Just the difficulty of how alone he felt when all of a sudden this was in front and all the troops said, we're with you, Mel. And none of them were. And we wonder why he appears on the tabloid. And I just go like, guys, we're not going to take this mountain if we keep doing that. What pitfall should Christian artists, musicians, writers, actors watch out for? Providing trite answers to complex difficulty. Can you elaborate? <laughs> Not necessary. All right. Uh, this begins with, I guess I have to maybe s- siphon through. This is a long one. It's like a, a novel. I've never read The Shack. It's a good way to start out. But I've heard accusations about its errant theology. I was unsure about these accusations until I heard about Young's other book, Lies We Believe About God. Are you familiar with this book? Yes, he is. Yeah. I'm seriously concerned about some of these lies. Okay. Um, the, the, the simple history of the authorship of the book would settle that concern. Paul will have to answer for himself. He's going off the reservation as far as I read that. He's asking provocative questions, which is in his nature, which I think is wonderful. But the answers he's providing is causing a lot of people to trip and stumble. I don't, some of them, they're not reading clearly enough because I've, I've, I've read the reviews with alarm. And then I went to the source. I bought the book and I read it in one night till five in the morning. And he isn't guilty of all the things that those people are declaring of him, even though I would love to say that. That's my own shallowness. But he's guilty of the universalism. And I just go, dude, now I got to put a wall of separation that I would love not to because I don't think it's damnable for him to think what he's thinking. I think it's error. I don't think it's helpful But I've also shared life with the man. His son lived in my house. I know an awful lot about him. And while I don't like some of what he's doing, I wouldn't say he doesn't know Jesus. And I don't think we're good at that at all. And I look at Jesus, and I think he's far more generous to all of us. None of you have perfect theology. None of us have perfect theology. I'm not saved by perfect theology. I'm saved by a savior if I trust in him. Sorry. Uh, I like this one. I can answer it for him. Okay. I'll give you a break, okay? 
I was raised Baptist and taught the only right way to read the Bible was the King James Version. Besides what you already spoke on, how would you explain to someone that is still learning his word that different versions of the Bible are okay and still true to the faith? He actually stood on the NASB, which is, uh, I, I prefer the New King James Version, Masoretic Text. And um, I, I've always said this from the pulpit, that the best version of the Bible, bar none, the most powerful version of the Bible is the one you're reading. Amen. Read it. I mean, you know, we, we can find all, all kinds of disparity between um, the two di different original texts and, and contend for that. Um, but um, by like NASB, both, if you, I like it, New King James. If you really want to be a student, I got 26 different ones. I'm kind of curious where they come up with consensus and where they differ and why. And the more you know about the background of the translators, the more you can understand the actual bias. I know why certain denominations like those and others like those. And all of them are awesome. I, 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 would, I would not be bothered with a single one. The, we studied this on Friday mornings, the King James Version of the Bible, interestingly enough. The founders, the pilgrims who came here, 1620 Mayflower Compact, the Bible they brought with them was what was called the Geneva Bible. And it had all of the commentary from John Knox and Calvin listed, and they, they started to formulate civil government based on the commentary. And the, the government at the time was a monarchy and uh, divine right of kings, and the last thing they wanted was any other form of government, especially giving rights to man. So they outlawed the printing of any English Bibles without authorization of the king. And so to combat the Geneva Bible, they put forward the King James Bible. Now, the King James Bible is the exact same thing as the Geneva Bible. It just doesn't have the commentary on the side of it. That questioned so, the king. Yeah. So that's yeah, that questioned the king. They just didn't want that. So it's interesting. There's, there's motivations to all of it. Well, let's do this. Uh, how many folks are interested in working in arts and entertainment, media, or, or Hollywood, wanting to get a foothold, or, or you have some sort of a calling in that direction, raise your hand. All right, raise, raise them up nice and high. Okay, uh, you get first stab at them, all right? Everyone who raised their hand and was bold enough to do it, we're going to leave an opportunity for you to come up and ask questions of Brad to engage in this mountain of cultural influence. Glean from him and learn from him, asking some questions. The rest of you... I'll wait for those folks who raise their hand. Actually, I'm going to have you stand up. If you were one of those folks who raise your hand, stand up and stand right over here. Come on over. Can, can I do something? Yes. Can I pray for them? Yeah, do that. Come on over. Come on over. They're called into this industry. Or you even remotely think you might. This is, this, do you realize what you're doing? Yes. This is insane. Yes, we need you. Yeah. This is awesome. All right, pray for them. Jesus, I ask that you, as our creator, would absolutely lavish your gifts, your spirit, your creativity on them? Would you clothe them with your presence and your power? Give them a sanctified imagination to kind of go nuts and being able to communicate the reality of who you are in story, in song, and however they are gifted in their talents, God. Would you cause them to be available like the pen of a ready writer when you start to breathe and speak? Would you, would you draw them to you in greater intimacy that, God, they would, they would know you 
not about you, know you. And then I ask that you would grant them favor. Fame comes as a gift, God, for your purposes, though many that have it don't understand why you gave it. Would you cause your favor to come upon these people? And would you, would you protect them? Would you put a, a guard round about them and especially their heart, Lord, that they would not be subject to the evil attack of rejection and the enemy, that somehow they would find shelter in you and, Lord, they would be able to go the distance because they know this is something you have called them unto. Burn out their need for validation and ego. And God, grace them with the heart of a servant who is excellent. And that will make room for them. The Bible says a man's gift will make room for them, Lord. Would you cause the gift that you have placed in them and the favor you've placed upon them to create space for them to grow and enter into a very needy area for the kingdom of God? In Jesus' name, amen.